Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. Well, today's conversation was one of the most inspiring and empowering conversations I think I've had on this show. Just so many great takeaways and just so many quotable quotes. Siri Lindley knows the power of the mind and the ability to use mental strategies just to optimize her life and, and take on the struggles that are presented. And in doing so, she's helping others do the same. I was just thoroughly enthralled with this entire chat. Before we go on, just a couple of bits of um, housekeeping. Uh, please go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media if you want to get the show notes, the timestamps, links, and uh, also the sponsor's coupon codes can be found there. Also, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. That would really help me out. So thanks for that. And finally, um, please keep the feedback coming. Loving it. Uh, on Instagram, I'm Greg Bennett World. On Twitter, I'm Greg Bennett One. And then you can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn just as, as Greg Bennett. Um, but anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible. The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and, and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water so there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from whole foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free tra daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade. Designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now. No code needed. And get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com. And use code GREG10 for 10% off. All right, my guest today is one of the few to reach the top of the world as an athlete by winning the ITU World Championships and two World Series titles, and then being able to transition into a multiple world champion coach. 
Her most notable athletes, including Marinda Carfrey, three-time Ironman world champion and 70.3 world champion, and Leander Cave, also an Ironman and 70.3 world champion, and Susan Williams to a bronze medal at the Athens Olympic Games. She's a gifted athlete, coach, speaker, and she's worked relentlessly to optimize these gifts and, and just share them with others. She's someone that always seems to look at life as glass half full and always trying to just get the most out of life. And I've been a friend for almost 20 years, I think, and I'm just so excited to have on the show one of the great personalities of the sport of triathlon. So welcome and thank you for joining me on Be With Champions, Siri Lindley. How are you, Siri? I'm doing great. Thank you, Greg. And it is an absolute joy to be on your show. I've been loving your podcast. Um, I obviously love you. I've known you for over 20 years and um, it's great to be here. So thank you for having me. Well, I've been really, I was very cautious about sort of reaching out to you. And I, I, I kind of wrote you and said, Siri, I know you've been through a lot and I want to talk about that. And, um, and I know that you've had to transition. There's been a lot going on in your life. So if it's okay, maybe let's start with what you've just gone through this last six to nine months. I didn't mention it in the introduction because I wanted you to tell me about that most recent journey of Siri Lindley. Sure. Well, in November, you know, life, life was great, you know, and life is great, but it always is great because we're alive. But uh, I was in November and I've been having some real hip issues um, from probably from how hard I had trained for triathlon and maybe not doing all the right things for my body. Um, but I went in to have a hip replacement, believe it or not. Whoa. And during my pre-op, they took all my blood work and they said, we're not going to be able to operate. There's something really, um, something going on with your blood work. You're going to need to get this checked out. And within two days, um, I got a phone call and my doctor said, you have acute myeloid leukemia and you also have a genetic mutation that is going to make this really difficult to treat. Now, my world just turned upside down. It's like, you oh know. I just, I just got goosebumps. I'm sorry. That's just, oh, how frightening. Uh, just it, go on. I'm sorry. Terrifying. And here I am. I'm an athlete. I take great care of my body. I work out every day. Like, I really pay attention to doing everything right for my body. And I looked. My wife was listening, Rebecca Keat, and, and she was bawling, you know, tears coming out of her eyes. And, and I looked at her, and I just, in my terror and in my shock, in that same moment, I just looked at her and I'm like, I've never felt such love for anyone in my entire life. And I felt her love back for me. And I felt my love for this life. And in that moment, I was just like, this is not my time to go. Like, I have so much more living to do and giving to do and, and so many things to, to accomplish and I decided in that moment that, that no matter what, like I am going to survive and I'm not just going to survive this, but, but I'm going to thrive. And the crazy thing is, Greg, and, and I think that our decisions are so incredibly important. You know, when you declare something, it means that every thought you have, everything that you do is focused solely on that outcome. And, um, you know, I was just, it was the most terrifying thing ever. And I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do about this? And what's my plan of attack? And I have so many amazing people in my life that were, you know, telling me you should go to this person and do this person or take this approach or take that approach. But in the end, 
just like with anything in life, you have to just listen to your gut and believe in what your gut is telling you and, and follow your heart. And I chose um, these two incredible doctors that happen to be right here in Denver, Colorado. Um, and the goal was to do this clinical trial and hopefully that would put me in remission. And I had no doubts. Like most people are like, Oh, clinical trial. Like, don't do that. That's scary. And I was only like the seventh person to ever do this trial. Um, but I felt like I've got to do this. This is it. And the goal was to get in remission through that. And then immediately like go into hospital and get a bone marrow transplant. And, and basically what they do is a week before the bone marrow transplant, they drop the biggest bomb they possibly can on you to just take your body to where you're almost dead. It's really scary, but they do that to just wipe out everything that was there before. So when they do the bone marrow transplant, you can take it and your body will receive it. Um, now, let me just tell you a little story outside of this, because I think a lot of triathletes can... Um, relate to this on a different level. You know, I was being, when I got out on social media and told everybody about my diagnosis, you know, I was very positive about, okay, you know, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to survive this. And, and these are the things I'm going to do. And this woman wrote me and she said, Siri, how can you be so positive about this? Don't you realize that the statistics show that the chances of you surviving are less than 10%? And I read this and I'm like, I can't believe this woman is actually saying this to me. But I tell you what, oh man, that built up a fire in me. And I wrote her back and I said, I am not a statistic. I am Siri Lindley. And I've proven in the past that what is impossible is really possible. And I'm going to prove that again. I will triumph. And that gave me as much as it infuriated me and hurt me and upset me and worried me. It gave me this fire that made me even more determined if that was even possible. Um, but basically, Greg, I mean, it has been, <laughs> um, the, the hardest thing I've ever been through in my entire life. I mean, it, it, this disease, it brings you to your knees, you know, and, um, one of the things I had to learn, you know, as triathletes, we're all so self-sufficient and, and we, you know, it's all up to us. The gun goes off. It's all up to you. No one's there holding your hand or helping you make it happen. There are people behind the scenes, obviously, but I needed to learn how to receive. I needed to learn to allow others to take care of me because I got to a point where I couldn't do anything myself. I was so weak and so sick that my wife had to take care of me. My mom had to take care of me. I was in hospital for over a month um, you know, a former shadow of myself, but what I always had inside of me was remembering who I am and remembering, you know, what I had accomplished in the sport when I started at 23 years old, I didn't even know how to swim, you know, but I, eight years later become a, became a world champion. And that, you know, I had the photo of me winning the world championships up on my hospital wall, along with like 20 vision boards, you know, kind of reminding me of life that was waiting for me. But that picture of me winning the world championships was my proof, you know, my proof that I have everything I need inside of me. And as impossible as it seems right now, as sick as I am, as weak as I am, I will triumph and I will survive. And having that proof is so powerful. And we all have our own version of that kind of proof of, of how capable we are. Um, but long story short, 
Greg, um, I'm just so deeply grateful for my A-team, which was, you know, my wife and my amazing mom and the doctors and nurses and the hospital. And now I'm in two days, I'm six months post bone marrow transplant and I'm cancer free. So uh, all kudos to you. And honestly, just if there's anybody in the world that I would have said is going to beat something like this, it would have been hard pressed to put anybody above you. And, and the, what I mean by that is, let me let me take it a step back. I had on my on this episode uh, a show Dr. Tommy Wood a few a few weeks back, and, and Dr. Tommy Wood is one of the br- most brilliant men on the planet. Um, for those that haven't listened to it, he's, you know, biochemistry degree at Cambridge University, medical degree at Oxford University, and then neuroscientist, uh, a PhD, every just everything you can imagine. Anyway. We were talking about, you know, the mental approach and what our mental, basically what we think has a direct effect on our physiology, right? And and when you hear that from somebody with that kind of an education that, you know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, visualizing and affirmations and just, but he said, and, and the one thing that I take away from knowing you for so long is that you have a very comfortable way of getting inside your own mind and taking control of it. And that's obviously taken work over years, but you've done that as an athlete. You've done that as a coach and helped other athletes do that. And so you're very comfortable in going, right, I'm taking control of my own life. I am going to have this kind of an attitude. I'm going to be grateful for this. I'm going to do this and this. And I think when we we talk about the fact that what we think has a direct effect on our physiology, when you get told this information, I can just, I, I already, I, even when I heard about it, I was like, if anybody is going to be stronger than this, it's going to be this woman. And I can't tell you how happy it is for me to hear that where you are now um, and just how amazing it is to have, you know, Keatsy on your side and your mum, who are just both beautiful, wonderful women that have just been there for you the whole way through. And, just absolutely fantastic. I guess the next question is, how's your hip? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Well, first of all, I am so grateful for this bad hip or or for the really bad <laughs> of hip. Course. I mean, it saved my life. Had I not had a bad hip, I wouldn't have found this when I did. Um, the hip is so much better. I mean, because I spent probably four months of doing absolutely nothing except for light walking. So it helped it a lot and kind of the luxury I have now. And of course, you know, I put a positive spin on everything is, you know, in my bone marrow transplant, my donors were my sister and an umbilical cord. And basically my sister's uh, cells taught the umbilical cord what to do. And now the umbilical cord is my new immune system. And I'm basically like a baby right now. It makes no sense, but I'm basically like six months old right now. And my immune system, I have to go have my one-year vaccinations in, one, in six months oh. and all this weird stuff. But it also, that made me think, okay, well, if I'm starting basically from scratch like a baby, I'm going to do everything right for my body. I am going to build up a, an incredibly strong foundation where everything is balanced. I'm going to just... I mean, I ate so well before, but now that I have my appetite back, like I'm going to eat everything, you know, organic and all the right way and cut out anything that could possibly, you know, lead to cancer. So it gives me this platform where I feel 
Like I'm starting from scratch, but I'm going to build up doing everything right so that I not only, you know, stay cancer free, but I thrive, you know, for another 50 years. So, so that's kind of the goal. And the hip is so much better. I just started running. I ran 30 minutes today, very slowly, but that was like the biggest miracle and victory. And Beck and I were like jumping up and down. Um, so yeah, the hip is is better, and I hope to keep it that way by really taking care of my body and doing all the right things. Gosh, that's just, just amazing, isn't it? Like when you just what you just described is just absolutely incredible. What they can do now, it's just it blows my mind, and I love the way that you're looking at it. It's like okay, it's almost like Siri take two. Here we go, version two. <laughs> New new and improved, which is even scarier for everybody else out there. (laughs) It's unreal. I mean, I I just think that's absolutely, I'm still in shock. You know, you're basically working off this umbilical cord of a six-month, you know, that's crazy. just absolutely, yeah, isn't it? I have black curly hair now, Greg. So here's the other crazy thing. You know, I used to have flat as a board hair, like <laughs> so flat and straight, and it was like a light brown. I have black hair and it's curly and it's like, whatever you want me to have, God, I'll take it. I'm alive. Just I'll take the curls and the black hair. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Look, thank you for sharing all of that. And uh, I really appreciate, you know, starting the this episode by going through that. Um because it's, right. I think it's one of the most in, inspiring and empowering stories that we can we can all hear and, and learn from. So so thank you. What what I want to do now is is you touched on you know you started the sport at twenty three, but I'd love to wind the clock back and and when did you sort of first find your your passion for endurance sports? Were you an athlete before you turned twenty three? Yeah. So my whole life, I was a. Uh, I mean, up until that point, I was a field hockey, ice hockey, and lacrosse player. And I played varsity in all three of those at Brown University and loved it and and did really well. So, So that was great. So I knew how to sprint up and down a field. I knew how to chase a puck. I knew all those things, but I really had no real endurance background. I, I certainly didn't know how to swim. Uh, but when a friend of mine asked me to come watch her at a triathlon, first of all, I had no clue what a triathlon was, but I showed up and I was just in awe of all these people because they were different sizes, different ages, different, you know, races, different ability levels, but every single one of them was just digging so deep. And it was like they were discovering themselves through, through the challenge of the swim and the bike and the run. And I thought, my God, this is incredible because I was at a place where I so wanted to figure out like who I was. I had, I had just recently, I'll, I'll make this short, but I just recently discovered that I was gay. And that was like a big bomb dropping on me. You know, it's not like, Oh, yay. You know, great. I, you know, I'm gay. And my dad had, found out and and rejected me. We have a great relationship now. There's a very happy ending. But basically, you know, he called me and, and said, somebody told me you're gay. Like, like you, I couldn't possibly have a daughter that's gay. I beg you, sir, you tell me right now that this isn't true. Mm. And I said, dad, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's true. I'm gay. Please just love me anyway. And... <laughs> He hung up the phone and I didn't hear from him for the next two years. And I was devastated. But there's a gift in this because like his rejection made me feel like everything I had accomplished up until that point in time meant absolutely nothing now that I was gay. And so it left me feeling like, my God, I need to prove to, to myself, most importantly, 
that even as a gay woman, I can achieve something spectacular, that I can make a difference in this world, that I can inspire people. Like, like it became this, this almost like a desperation. And it was soon after that I watched that race and I thought, what a perfect way to discover like what I'm made of and to prove to myself that I'm strong and capable and can be inspiring. And so the gift in his rejection was that it gave me this incredible will and this determination and this why behind, you know, wanting to make this happen. And, you know, we all have to kind of look back at, at times we've been rejected or hurt or disappointed. Like so often that is what has given us that strength, that will, that why that powers us through to achieving these things that seem impossible. But again, that's your... I, th- I don't know if it's in your DNA or or, or what, but it, t- it it tends to me. What I'm hearing is it in your life when you get these massive slaps in the face. It's you take one road, and and many others, most others, might actually turn the other way and fall in a heap and a slump and and look for other. You know, whereas you. I don't know what's in your DNA, but there's definitely a fighter in there. There's definitely a warrior that not everybody has, by the way. I think this is uh, – I actually have a, a DNA doctor coming on in the next episode, and and I'm really looking forward to honing in on what makes a champion athlete. Um, and, and so I think there's something in you, a drive, uh, that what I'm picking up on, and we're only 17 minutes into this conversation, <laughs> is that – if we want the best out of Siri Lindley, we better knock her down. It's like I, it's like I said to Timothy O'Donnell, and I'm not making light of y- your life by any means. I don't mean it like that. Um, and I had T.O. on the, on the show, and and I, you know, obviously, you know T.O. very well. And every time he's gone to Ironman Hawaii and done well, he's had catastrophe right beforehand. And so I said, you know, come 2021, Kona, I'll come and chop his foot off or something and then he'll probably win but my point is with that is is it seems like there's this underlying theme amongst great athletes that sometimes it go right you're going to take this away from me fine i'm going to give it back tenfold you know it's like this uh and i think that's a it's a really inspiring for people to hear that look for all of us we're all dealing with setbacks and hardships at times and there's an attitude we can have in that moment that we can transform ourselves to move forward in in a positive direction. And you've been a fantastic role model on that. So moving a little bit forward, when was it within the sport of triathlon that you were like, huh, I got some ability here. I got some talent. I'm I'm, I'm a reasonable athlete. Well, well, first of all, just to what you just said, because that was really great. I believe that everyone has the ability to be that fighter and to take a bad situation and have it empower them. And that's just, it's making a choice. It's making the decision. It's disciplining your focus. So I do believe that we all, and I can't wait to hear what your DNA doctor says, <laughs> that it that you really, you can choose, you choose who's in charge in your life. You know, what part of you, whether it's a warrior or the, or the wimp, you know, mm. you get to choose who's going to be in charge. Um, but when did I find out? Well, when I started, Greg, I mean, my first race, I came out to Colorado and I was, I humiliated myself. Like I I never, like truly I got to the desk, the registration desk and, and they're like, you know, what is your hundred meter time? Because the swim was in a pool. 
And I'm like, 100 meter time, I don't even understand like what that means. Like, and, and the lines building and everybody's getting frustrated because you know how anal triathletes are going into a race. But I couldn't figure out what she wanted from me. And she's like, you know, is it 130, 125, 120, 115? I'm like, 115, it's 115. I had no clue what 100 meter time <laughs> even was. And so I was in this lane with like these huge guys with triangular, you know, chess and 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 I, of course being the dork that I am because I am at heart very much a dork you know I'm first in line my toes are curling over the side of the pool the gun goes off I jump in and within like five seconds I was just being like like just pushed around and dunked under the water and it was like horrendous because I didn't know how to swim but the best part was that literally you know when I had finished four lengths everyone else was already out and on the bike. So I had the whole lane to myself, which was brilliant. Um, but anyways, I got on the bike and I, you know, felt like I was climbing Mount Everest. It turns out the course was like completely flat. And on the run, I, I, I did what I knew, you know, I sprinted for as long as I could until I was hunched over, like gagging and coughing and trying to get my breath back. And then, and then sprinting again, another hundred meters until I had to stop and gag. And I had my helmet on like half the time. And I finished the race literally in last place. And my mom was at the finish line. She had everything packed up. She's like, oh, great job. You did it, honey. Let's go have lunch. And I was like, mom, like the awards are at one o'clock. We can't leave yet. And she looked at me like, my God, my daughter actually thinks she's getting an award today. And But we waited and, and I most certainly didn't get an award. But what I did get is... Oddly, that night, I said to my mom, Mom, I am going to be the best in the world in this sport. And she tried not to laugh. She tried not to cry. She tried not to. She didn't know what to say. She thought it was just ridiculous. But she said, OK, honey, I'll support you. But if it doesn't look like it's working out, promise me you'll stop. Um and that decla declaration was ridiculous, Greg. I mean, how ridiculous. I had humiliated myself. People were laughing. They felt sorry for me. I was pitied. But I had never felt so alive in my entire life. And I thought, there has to be something to this. Like, And I was willing to just, like every athlete out there, you know this. You're one of the hardest workers I've ever seen in this sport. You're just willing to do whatever it takes to make this happen. And it was probably, you know, I moved out to Boulder, Colorado, and Jane Scott, I don't, she's one of the best swim coaches. She's Dave Scott's sister. She used to throw me in these lanes that were way faster than I could ever manage. And she said, just hang on as long as you can and then pull to the side. And that's what I would do. I would just like hang on as long as I could until I had to pull the, to the side and then I'd get back on again. Um, but it was in 1996, I believe. I, I, actually 1995 and I was in Mexico at the world championships and I got on the podium. I think I was in third place and I'll never forget. I went out to the beach after the race and Karen Smyers was there and she was like my hero. She was out on the beach drinking a beer and I went up and I introduced myself like a dork and she asked how I went and I said, oh, well, I told myself that if I won today, I was going to turn pro, but I only came in third. So I got to wait until, you know, one day I, I win the age group world championship. And she said, oh, Siri, that's ridiculous. You need turn pro now. You got on the podium. 
And when you turn pro, that's going to push you enough. You're going to see how far you have to go and it's going to really motivate you and you will perform so much better. So it was due to her, um, her encouraging me that I turned pro that following year. And my first race was that race in Pucon, Chile. And somehow I went out there and I was so excited. I traveled to this other country and I won that race. And, and that was the first time where I thought, wow, like maybe this, maybe this can happen. Maybe I'm not going to like be the best in the world, but like maybe I can actually make a living out of this or at least survive doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Uh, I'm going to be a world champion. And, oh uh, yeah. well, no, you know what? I think you're the third guest I've had that at a young age had said the similar thing. Helen Jenkins is, is one. She was talking to her high school career advisor and they're saying, what university you want to go to? What are you going to do? And she's like, I'm going to be a world champion triathlete. And, and, and she kind of described it. Suddenly those words came out of her mouth and she's like, Oh, Oh, yeah. I should I shouldn't have said that out loud. And then and then it was uh, I can't remember how many years later it might have been similar to you. It was kind of like that that journey of eight years. And there she was in in Vancouver winning the world championships. And then she won the world series when it became a series. She won. So I, there's something to this. <laughs> and I and I know. Look for every every young kid that's saying I'm going to be a world champion. There's one in a thousand that actually makes it happen. But I do love hearing the ones where it actually did happen. And I think that's just extraordinary. And and you mentioned Karen Smyers, um, and it's, she's somebody I should have on this show. Actually, Karen, yeah. one of the most beautiful people in the world, and probably one of the greatest uh, triathletes on the planet. She uh, won Kona. She won the uh, ITU world champs. She's basically went on a winning streak there in the early nineties, which was just incredible. So to have her in your corner in 1995 in Cancun kind of go, and I think it was 95 where she did the double. I think she yes, won. She yes. 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 That's right. She won the Ironman world championships and she won the, the Cancun world championship. And what was interesting about Cancun that year for the elites was that was the first year that we had draft legal. And so she had to take herself from basically a time trialist type athlete into being a, um, a draft legal athlete only about four weeks after. I think Cancun was like early November and, and uh, yeah. Kona is always at the start of October. So anyway, that, that's, that's Karen Smyers. And I just wanted to touch on her because she's just such an incredible person to have come up to you and say, let's go professional. And then at what point were you, I mean, it's one thing to turn pro, and it's an expression we hear in the US. I'd never heard of it in Australia. It was kind of like I grew up and suddenly if you enter open and you make money, you just are. You know, So uh, we never really turned pro. We just were pro um, yeah. if, you money, if you made money. Um, but you turned pro. At what point were you like, okay, let's, let's go all in here? Were, were you kind of a, a hobbyist professional for a little bit and then you had to pull the trigger? At what point was it? Was there any transition there? So I was never a hobbyist. You know, I've always had the attitude and that's why I thought I needed to win an age group world championship before I could Mm. deserving of racing pro. So already I'd put this thing on my back saying, geez, Siri, you know, you didn't really earn this turning pro. So you better, you better do something about it and be good and make it work. Um, Because I am not one that believes people should turn pro just to say they're a pro mm-hmm. and and then suffer, you know, at the at the very back. Like as as long as they're working so hard to to make it and to get better and to prove and to get faster. Like that's what it's all about. And that's 
kind of how I was in it, but I took it so seriously, like from day one. And if you have Karen on the show, Greg, mm. don't tell her, I'm going to just add a little something about this manifesting and saying, I want it to be the best. There was this picture of her after that year when she won Ironman and short course world championships. And she was on the cover of triathlete magazine and she's running down the beach and I literally cut her head off the picture and put my head on it and, <laughs> it and changed the words Karen Smyers world champion to serial only world champion I'm not kidding I did this in 1996 but this is actually a tool that I think works that's why I'm sharing it even though I'm embarrassed it's kind of embarrassing not and I don't want to her but and literally eight years later, Triathlete Magazine had a cover with me on it with the same thing. It said, on top of the world, Siri Lindley, and there I was in almost the same position. So that was pretty incredible. But when I started racing pro, Greg, like I took it so seriously as, as every athlete does. Um, but I had vowed to myself that if I wasn't competitive, um, that I didn't belong. And so I knew, you know, I was trying to model the best athletes in the sport. I, I at the time, McKeeley Jones was winning everything. And I literally moved to Australia because I knew that's where she trained. That's where you train. That's where all these incredible, the best in the world were training. So I moved to Australia, found out which pool she was swimming at, you know, swam, swam in her lane and hung on as long as I possibly could. We ended up being friends and I ended up renting out a room in her house with your wife. Actually. I was about to say, this story sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. So Laura and I shared this 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 tiny little bedroom and, and we were training with McKeely and I modeled her. You know, I thought if I do what she does and, and, and understand how she thinks and how she eats and how she recovers, you know, this must take me to a whole new level because I'm doing what the very best does. Modeling is so powerful. Mm. And um, it took me to a whole new level um, modeling her. And I learned so much from her and I'm so grateful. And I'm sure Laura did too. And Laura and I learned from each other also. Yeah. It was brilliant. Um, but, and then I, after that, you know, I started coming in, you know, fourth place in World Cup races, which was huge for me. It was amazing, but I kept coming in fourth, and you you can relate to this sometimes. Coming in fourth and fourth and fourth, and then I was like, "What do I need to do to get to that next level?" Like, like there was something missing, and um, it was time for the Olympic trials. And um, here's something: you know, coaches out there are athletes that use visualization. I totally think it's the most powerful thing but you have to be aware of how you're visualizing. So what I did for 365 days leading into the Olympic trials, I visualized the perfect race, like literally diving in. I'm on the front pack. I'm on their feet. Everything's going beautifully. I get out of the water. I'm in the front pack and, and everything's perfect. And every night I saw that same exact thing, finishing, you know, crossing the line, making the Olympic team. Well, on that day, the gun went off and within the first 30 seconds, I got dunked and kicked and went under the water and I lost the front pack. And in my mind, it's like all I knew was that perfect race, you know, that I was going to have today. And I couldn't respond because I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't, in my visualizations, prepare for overcoming an obstacle during the race and I choked. 
I literally choked it. I was going as hard as I possibly could, but I was going backwards, got on the bike. I was going as hard as I could and packs were passing me and I quit. It was awful. I, I didn't finish. And it was the worst feeling in the entire world. And I'll never forget. I knew that this one decision was going to change my life. And that decision was going to be when somebody comes up to me and asks me what happened, what am I going to say? And the first person came up and they said, what happened? Are you sick? Did you have a flat tire? Did you have a mechanical? What's wrong? And I just said, I choked. I completely choked. I had visualized the perfect race for 365 days. And when one thing happened that didn't fit that script, I completely just choked. I I was paralyzed. Mm. And um, it's a big lesson to visualize things going wrong and overcoming them successfully and being calm and, and having your wits about you and being able to handle it. Like that's important to face those scenarios as well in your visualization so that when they do happen, you totally know how you're going to respond. Um, but I knew that in owning what happened, that that was going to open up what I was going to be capable of in the future. If I gave an excuse, if I said, oh, yeah, you know, I've got this little injury or, or my bike wasn't working properly or I came up with an excuse, that was going to leave me powerless. And that was going to leave me also feeling horrible about myself and 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 lacking belief in myself if I've got to make up an excuse. So I wanted to own it. And it changed my entire career because that was the turning point for me. I decided, you know, I need to make some decisions in how I'm, you know, tackling this plan um, to toughen me up and and get me to that next level. And that's when, you know, I, I knew about Brett Sutton. He was your coach as well for a while. Like, at the time, he, he was just the best coach in the world. I still think he is one of the best coaches in the world. And I thought, you know, proximity is power. You know, who you surround yourself. Are, are you surrounding yourself with people that bring you down and, and don't challenge you to become better? Or are you surrounding yourself with people that, you know, push you to all new levels and bring out the best in you? And, you know, if I could get him to coach me, I'm not only going to have the best coach in the world, but I'm going to be training side by side with world champions and Olympic medalists. Like for sure, that's going to take me to the next level. And, um, he, when I got in front of him, you know, he had, he had seen me race in, in Noosa and he remembers me because all you guys had finished the race and I was like running in like 29th place. And he was like walking home to his hotel (laughs) and, he saw me and I was absolutely like destroying myself to come in 28th place. And he remembered that. And he said, I like that. That's hunger. You know, that I was like, it didn't matter that I was in 29th place. I was going to destroy myself to come in 28th. So he took me on and, you know, it was the most humbling and scary experience of my life because I was just the worst in the entire squad. Like I got my ass kicked to oblivion every single day. Um, And every day, you know, the things, the sessions he would give me were just like seemed impossible. They seemed brutal. They were terrifying. They'd make me cry. But every single day, I would just do the best that I could. And I would find a way. And I proved to myself every day that what seemed impossible is really possible. So it was a brilliant situation for me. And it built up my confidence. And it really showed me that we are so much more powerful than we think we are. 
It's You're amazing. Kidding. Yeah, I have the same kind of stories with Brett. I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought. No, I love it. Because, I love I, because I, there is this, um, you think you're training hard and then it's like, wow, I, I can actually do more than I, than I ever thought I could. And what, I, what I, I just want to interrupt a little bit there because I do want to touch on a couple of things that you said. And, and the first is, I think this this show, what it's largely about is um, I felt throughout my career that, that learning from the best and being surrounded by the best was the most empowering thing I could do for myself to to get the most out of myself and and hearing you say that you you know when you you flew to australia and and i've heard it quote unquote from laura exactly the same as you i had to fly to australia because that's where the best of the world were that's where they were racing in the in the uh, off season well so-called off season and i could stay with mckeely jones who is arguably one of the the greatest female yeah. triathlete of all time um with winning kona and silver medal at the olympics and plethora of gold medals in world championships here are you and Laura bunking up in her house, living with her and, and watching everything that she did. And I just think that was for both you and Laura, just such a commendable step in your athletic careers. So that's step one. And then step two is going, okay, here am I coming fourth and top tens and I'm becoming known as the consistent athlete. And I, I feel your pain. That's what I was in the late nineties was this consistent athlete. And then I look at your resume after you just joined Brett, um, and I, I forgive me, I don't know the exact date you joined Brett, but if I look at your resume and I see you winning on the 12th of August, so about one month before the first Olympic Games in Sydney, you win the Lausanne ITU World Cup. Now, what's interesting about this Lausanne ITU World Cup is who comes second and third to you. So firstly, this is your first World Cup win. I, I think I'm correct in saying that. But yes. Bridget, Bridget McMahon was second, McKeeley Jones in third. Now, one month later, Bridget McMahon wins the gold medal in Sydney. McKeeley Jones comes second. Oh. Did you know that? Maybe did you know that? Or did I just rub salt in the wound? I'm sorry. Greg, no, I, 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 I didn't know that. And you just gave me, I literally have goosebumps all over my body. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And, um, but I wouldn't change it for the world because, you know, if I had made the Olympic Games, I wouldn't have made the decisions I made. Of if course. I had made the, the Olympics, I wouldn't have thought I need something more. I need to make a change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. No, wow. I get it. I have a – when I, I missed the same Olympics, you know, the hometown Olympics, and uh, I'm sorry to wrap it on about myself if people have heard no, the story, but, but basically I was ranked number two in the world going into Sydney Olympics. I'd won the Australian Championships in 98 and 99. I, I just felt very comfortable and, uh, and confident. Um, anyway, was left off the Australian team. And when I say left off, these days I, I'm quite comfortable with it. I wasn't prepared. Um, when I look back now, I'm like, no, I wasn't ready. I didn't deserve it. Anyway, but at the time it felt like I deserved it and, and it, it wasn't given it to me. Um, but had I gone to those Olympics, I would not have been moved to Victoria, Canada, where Simon Whitfield asked me to come and train with him to get him ready for the Olympics. And it was in Victoria that I met Laura. Now, if you ask me, do I would I rather go to the Sydney Olympics, possibly medal, possibly not, who knows, or meet the, you know, the woman of my dreams and marry and 20 years later, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, those decisions, no they hurt at the time, but it's amazing when we reflect and go, wow, thank goodness that life threw me that way. But now I wanted to look at, I mean, Lasan was just the kickstart. I mean, I have your ITU World Cup resume. I can look at it here and it's just win after win after win. And if you're not winning, you're on the podium for the next two years. 
absolutely incredible. Um, I think I've counted, is it 13 World Cups almost in a row um, with a world championship in the middle of it in Edmonton. Tell me about that phase in your life where it was just, whoa, I'm here. This is this is what I told mum I would do eight years ago, and here I am. I mean, just remember. It was, it was a, a dream come true, Greg, and I truly thank you for sharing your story because I truly believe that life is happening for us, not to us. Mm. And that's been kind of a theme in my entire life, and your story shows that, my story shows that. Um, but yeah, winning that race in Lausanne, I mean, it was it was an absolute dream come true. And one of the things that shifted when I went to Brett is, and, and we need to pay attention to this as coaches, is figuring out, you know, are you connected with your why and your mission behind wanting to win and wanting to become great? And before the 2000 Olympics and the Olympic trials, like I had forgotten that I was doing this because I loved it. And, and it was this incredible way to find myself and discover what I'm made of. I lost track of that. And now it started becoming, okay, I need to make a paycheck. I need to make the team. I need to, you know, get sponsors. I need, 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 and all of this. And that was not energizing me in a positive way. That was really kind of putting a negative spin on everything and taking away of my freedom to truly perform. And when I went to Brad, I'll never forget. He said, okay, you are retiring starting now. And I was like, what do you mean retiring? He's like, no, you are, you're going to look at this differently. And so I thought about it and I thought, my God, you know, I was 23 years old when I started. I didn't even know how to swim. Seriously, didn't know how to swim. I was so terrible. And I'm actually at the level where I can try to qualify for an Olympic Games. My God, look how far I've come. And I started celebrating that. Instead of like, look how far I need to go, it was like, look how far I've come. And I was like, wow, I'm proud of myself. Like I've worked so hard and I failed over and over again. But each time I got back up, I dusted myself off. I, I changed my approach. I learned new things and I, and I made it further. And this gave me such an intense sense of gratitude um, to whatever you believe in. For me, it was God. It's like, I am so grateful that I have been blessed with the abilities and this will and this determination and this relentlessness and, and that I've come so far. Like, I just want to celebrate these gifts. And so my whole um, attitude and, and what I would think about going into a race is that I want to be able to show my thanks for these gifts that I've been blessed with. And so I'm going to go out there and when the gun goes off, I'm going to leave everything I have inside of me out on that race course. That's all I want to do is show my thanks by, by using everything I have inside of me. And that shows that I appreciate and acknowledge the gifts that I've been blessed with. And that. the minute I changed that grid, the minute that became my focus, I started winning. And it wasn't that, but it was Brett's training, obviously. I mean, he knew that what I needed was confidence and belief in myself. And even though the training he gave me, it really, you know, as a coach now, and I look back, it made no sense physically what he was giving me because it was just out of control, like craziness, you know, but it makes perfect sense to me. Um, when I understand that his approach was a mental approach of course, and his approach was to throw me something impossible every day and to, tell me that I needed to find a way to get it done 
and knowing me that I would do my best to find a way and I'd find a way and I proved it was possible like that day after day after day after day builds this confidence and this, and this courage inside of you. And, you know, I used to show up at races, like barely even able to walk. I was so sore, but the best gift about that is that that I could not have expectations about how I was going to race. I just hope that when the gun went off, I'd be able to take that first step, you know, on the pontoon. Yeah, I, I and, love that. Brett, Brett did that with a lot of his athletes. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I was coached by Brett in the late 90s there. And, and for a lot of athletes that did struggle with the mental anxiety or expectations or, or whatever it was, he did have this ability Firstly, yes, we would all get very fit. He was very good at getting getting us all very fit. Um, but for some athletes that maybe struggled with racing, I, I didn't have a problem with racing, but for some that did, I remember some of the girls would would do a 6K swim the morning of an afternoon race. Uh, you know, and, and that wasn't – obviously, it's not a fitness gain. It's, a, it's, a, it's having somebody go, well – I really don't have any expectation because obviously I'm tired, blah, blah, blah. So now I can just go and be free. And the number of people I've spoken to on this, on this episode where they had this breakthrough race or they had this incredible moment because they were free to just go and see what happens. There was zero expectation on themselves. There was zero fear or doubt. It was just go, whatever. And, and that freeing is really something incredible that – once you get used to doing that, it's amazing how you can then tap into it. And it comes into that almost learning how to win. I, I've talked about on this show a bit where I wasn't a born winner. And uh, you know Miles Stewart. Miles Stewart, uh, Australian, uh, he's the CEO of Triathlon Australia right now, but you know, world champion back in 91 and just one of the most phenomenal athletes I ever raced yeah. against for 10, 15 years. And I always looked at Miles. He's just a young guy. He won world championships, the Open World Championships at 18, out sprinting Rick Wells and Mike Pig, who were the two megastars at that time. And he went past them on the Gold Coast in Australia as an 18-year-old kid. He just knew how to win. Yeah. And I never felt like I was a Miles Stewart. I, I always felt like, uh, as Chris McCormack put it nicely, <laughs> I had an imposter syndrome. That to some degree, I, I didn't really belong. You know, and it took me a long time, a long, long time. Maybe I'm a very slow learner to learn how to win. I think I started learning to win in my mid 30s. You know, I'd been in the sport almost 20 years and then I started winning. It was like, wow. And, and so, what I appreciate about your story with Brett there is this ability to help you remove expectations and allow you to show your gifts. You know, and and I love the the gratitude. I love that uh, it's uh, something I practice a lot now. Um, when I get frustrated with the whole COVID nineteen and the world going mad, I kind of hang on. <laughs> every time you wash your hands, Greg, practice gratitude. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's so, it, it really helps bring down my blood pressure. So I, I think it's uh, I just love all of that. And so, take me through. I, I really want to hear Edmonton. ITU World Championships, 22nd of July, 2001. The, the day that happened eight years after you mentioned it 
nine years after you mentioned it to your mum that you're going to be a world champion. That day must have just everything came together. Tell me about that day. Yeah, and this is a perfect example, Greg, of how when we change our story, we change our lives. Mm. And kind of, I, I'm kind of made me think about it was you saying that you weren't really a winner, but then you know you started winning when you were 30. And your story now became, I am a winner because then you started winning everything, right? And mm. unbelievable. And, but this, this can be looked upon in different ways. Basically, um, I didn't know if I was even in a race because I, even though I was ranked number two in the world, um, I had missed our USA Federation's um, race that would qualify me for the world championships. <laughs> I had an Achilles injury and I didn't want to risk that because I was, wanting to be at my best for world championships. And when I got to Edmonton, the USA people said, you're not racing. You didn't qualify at our qualifier. And I was like, but I'm number two in the world. Like, like, please let me race. And I kind of fought it with them and, and talked to the ITU. And thank God the night before the race, the ITU said that I could race. That's actually why I did the Aquathlon, Aquathlon world championship and won that. So, so I had that world championship, which made satisfied me because I thought I'm probably not racing this weekend, but the ITU let me race. So I was number 61, you know, my spot in transition was all the way out at the back, but I was like, so excited that I had this opportunity to race. And I had probably one of my worst swims. I was in, you know, the last quarter of the entire field yes but and in fairness let me interrupt edmonton was always the worst if you <laughs> if you had a if you had a good ranking on the edmonton start line you basically got a 10 minute 10 meter lead <laughs> over the person down the other end of the beach so sorry to interrupt yeah. but number six no, right. you would you would have had the worst spot on that on that start line that was the worst so thank you for saying that that makes me <laughs> feel better great uh, but i came out in like near last place now now up until this point in time, my story when I would have a bad swim was bad swim race is over because at that level, you're in a world championship, like forget it. You're not going to catch up and be able to, you know, get on the podium. But on this day, I had trained so hard for so long and I'm like, I'm changing this. I didn't, I, I mean, I see this now. It's not like I was going through this in my mind, but I said, okay, you know what? Like bad swim. But my race isn't over. This is an opportunity, an opportunity I've worked so hard. Put my head down on the bike. I'm going to go harder than I've ever ridden before in my life and see how close I can get to the front. So instead of this bad swim being races over, I changed the meaning of the bad swim to being an opportunity to show my fitness and prove to myself, you know, that all my hard work has paid off. So I get on the bike and I am literally just destroying myself. And I catch the third pack and then I catch a second pack and then by the last lap, I, I'm in the front group and I'm just like, I'm just high on adrenaline. There'd been a crash up at the front and I think Nicole Hackett was out and we caught the front pack had caught the front four, Loretta Harrop and Sheila Taumina and Barb Lindquist. And I'm like, my and, God. And Laura. And Laura, I think. And, and Laura, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, I'm just teasing. Go on. Superstar, absolute superstar. Um, so we catch the front, and I'll never forget. And and McKeeley, when you listen to this, I hope you know I think you are one of the most incredible athletes this sport has ever seen. And and this fired me up, and I appreciate that. I got to the front, 
And McKeely was there and she knew how far back I was. And she looks at me and she's like, well, that was stupid. As if to say, like, you've just biked your head off, like you're not going to be able to run. And I had so much respect for her, like so much respect, but something struck a chord in me. And I took a deep breath and I looked at her and I said, hey, McKeely, ready to run? And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said that to like the best athlete in the world. So I'm thinking that. <laughs> We get off the bike. I take off like a bat out of hell. And McKeeley's like right on my shoulder. And I just was like, oh my God, I've never run so hard in my entire life. And I thought she was there the entire time. Like I heard her breathing. I call it phantom breathing because sometimes when you're at the front of the race, I don't know if you can, like if you can, uh, if this has happened to you, but you almost hear someone breathing on your back. And that kept me just pushing and pushing and pushing. And I, Cross the line, world champion, Greg. And it was an absolute, you know, it, it was the impossible dream coming true. But had I stuck to my story that if I have a bad swim in a race, my race is over, I would have just given up and this would have never happened. But I took a chance on me, you know, like races can start horribly and finish miraculously. It's what you choose to focus on. And that focuses everything. Mm. And I love the fact that, I mean, you haven't mentioned, you talk about the phantom breathing. You almost won by a, a, a minute, which you, you could have slowed up a fair bit. And I'm sure you show, slowed up a little bit at the finishing line. I hope you did. Uh, well, I didn't. You know why? And I'm sure Brett's done this to you. First of all, I saw my mom on the last lap and she's like, you're winning, Siri, you're winning. So I got all excited and I was ready to like kind of back off a little. And like 50 meters later, there's Brett and he yells at me with this, like, he sounded so angry. He's like, you haven't won anything yet. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm that there must be people coming <laughs> so I dug even deeper, but you know, him, he wanted me to, you know, go as fast as I could the entire way. So I could see, you know, where I'm at. So no, I, of course. But it's not even about the win with bread. A lot of the time it's about the effort. Uh, yes. yeah, I yeah. appreciate that very much. And, and then, so from that race, I mean, did that race kind of change your perception of yourself, your life, uh, did, was that a dramatic turning point? I mean, you'd already been winning a fair bit up until that race, a couple of World Cups, and then you kept winning for all throughout 2002. But that race, was that, you know, was that a big change? It was, it was massive, but I'm going to be just so honest here, even if, you, if it sounds horrible, but I was ready to retire on that day mm. because like, I had found what I was looking for. And, and what I found was like this appreciation for myself and finally like a love for myself because I appreciated how hard I worked and that I made this dream come true. And it was like, now I just want to like, you know, share everything that I experienced and, and help other people do this. But as, as we all know, we are our own biggest critics. And what would have happened if I retired is that, Further on down the line, I'd say, oh, what if I just got lucky? Or what if that was just a fluke? Or, and I'd start judging what happened and questioning it and not believing that I'd earned it. You know, I knew that I would be my own biggest critic. So I literally right after that race said, okay, you know, I'm going to put together, I'm going to finish this year and, you know, put together another year where I can hopefully, you know, race to my utmost potential and then I'm going to retire. But that way I can prove that I'm the real deal. Mm. And, and it's not just a fluke. It wasn't just a lucky day. Um, so what that did, um, 
I mean, it gave me a, a, a enormous amount of confidence in myself that, wow, I, I can't believe I just won a world championship because I used to just look up to every athlete that I was racing, you know, all of them. I was like, my God, you're so amazing. And now suddenly, you know, on that day, I was in that top spot. Um, but I tried to always understand that my biggest competitor was always going to be myself, my own mind, my own beliefs, my own, you know, everything. It, it, I was going to be my own biggest competitor. And so every race I went out just wanting to master my own mindset, wanting to master my game and, you know, hoping that that would lead to a great result, which thank God it did. You know, I, I feel so grateful. Um, for how things went, but that momentum that you get from a win where you prove to yourself. Um, and it's important that I think it's so important for athletes, you know, sometimes we win and then we just forget about it and we move on and we, you know, go into the next race, you know, feeling like, Oh, I hope I can do it. It's like celebrate those victories <laughs> inside and, and, and take note of what you just accomplished, like appreciate it, embrace it, give yourself a pat on the back because that's how we build momentum you know, like recognizing, acknowledging, appreciating, and then building upon that. Um, but I don't know about you, Greg. I mean, tell me, like when you won a race, did you celebrate it? Did you really appreciate it? Or was it, or well, was it just- it's funny that there's races where it's not that you expect to win, but you go in very confident. And there's been a few where I've kind of crossed the line and gone, okay, good. It's almost like tick the box. And I'm not taking it for granted. I was just that I was I was knew my place. I knew mentally, physically, emotionally, I was in a good place and ready to deliver a great performance. But then you have those races where they're unexpected, where they're, they're like you mentioned, maybe a come from behind where you you haven't done that before or, or or whatever it is, and suddenly you cross the line and there's this euphoria inside you where you're like, whoa, you know, there, there, there's a different kind of winning. There's that unexpected or expected and. And those unexpected wins that I that I had, and there was there were several throughout my career, but there was a few where it was just like, wow, that I was so emotionally high. And this is one thing that Laura and I always worked on is managing our emotions, never going too high, never going too low, that I recognized the emotional high that was almost uncontrollable high that I would almost uh, have to sit at home for a few days with my feet up and do nothing. And it sounds weird, but it just let it sit there. It almost yeah. just let it sit and sink in. And and one of those was 2011. My last really, really big win was the high V triathlon. It was big money. Oh, my God, that was amazing. And, and I, I just wanted to try and win a couple of bike preems, and all of a sudden I opened this lead. Anyway, I, I, I won the race, and it was just this euphoria inside me that I was almost exhausted for a week that I canceled any other race coming up because I was like, no, I'm going to be flat. It's not. I just need to let this one sink in. And it was, but there were others where it was kind of like, I remember I think Ishigaki back in 2001 or something, and I can't remember what year I won it, but, and Chris Hill and I had sort of broken away and I just felt confident that I had Chris, you know, for the final part of the run. And, and no no disrespect to Chris Hill, he won the World Cup Series in 2001, one of the great uh, competitors that I ever raced against, but I just felt that I had his measure for the 400-meter sprint to the line. And so that was one where you cross the line and go, okay, box ticked. I, I, I believed I could do it and I did it. And, and that was nice. So they're the two, two extremes, but I get what you're saying in that ability. When you win a race, take a moment or not even win. When you have a race or have a moment in life, appreciate. Okay. Here's, an, here's a side story for you. Last night, 
my two-year-old daughter, we have massive storms down here in Florida at the moment. 1 a.m., she's learned how to get out of her crib and open the door and come in and has to hop in bed with daddy. Now, I could be, okay, my, my, my two-year-old daughter's woken me up and now I'm all, you know, I'm not going to sleep for an hour or two or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. Or I could have the attitude, isn't this the greatest moment in life? That my my two year old daughter is curling up, and Dad, the protector of the big storm, is just and and there's my point is with all of that is kind of like being present, being in the moment, and not allowing these moments to just be fleeting. You know, recognize that these are moments in life that you get to have and you get to keep, and the more you reflect on them, the deeper they sink into your DNA. The, the more you get to hold them for longer. So I appreciate exactly what you said about Edmonton, that World Championships, understanding that I've done what I needed to do. But okay, I'll validate it to myself for another year that that wasn't a fluke. Now, the transition then, you know, knowing that you'd done what you'd wanted to do as an athlete. And I think you then channeled, you had one strength as an athlete, and I think you have great gratitude for that. But then I think you really found your, your true passion, your true calling and giving to others and, and helping others reach their potential. What was that transition like? And was it something that you always thought you would go into? I, I definitely, I, I wouldn't say I did know I was going to go into coaching, but but I must have, because when I crossed that line, I remember thinking, my God, like now I can help other people that think this is impossible. Um, so I, I definitely was destined to go into coaching. And, and I believe that my whole journey uh, through the sport as an athlete is what gave me, you know, my belief that there's this incredible quote, Greg, it's by Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. And it's, I saw the angel in the marble. And I carved until I set her free. I used to, with every athlete that I would take on, I would think about that quote. And I would, no matter whether they were a pure beginner or already a great athlete, I wanted to know that I saw something inside of them that if we chipped away at it, would release something extraordinary. And I'm someone that because of my own experience in the sport, I believe anything and everything is possible. And if the athlete is willing to believe that too and take the time and be patient and tackle every aspect of the sport, not just physically, but, you know, mindset and emotions and spiritually, all these things, um, that's what I would look for in coaching and someone that really, you know, had that same kind of dream. Um, so my, all my mistakes, all the things I did wrong, all the, you know, obstacles I had to overcome in my own mind, like having overcome those things and ultimately being able to succeed and to retire at number one in the world, that was very helpful because that kind of gave me some, you know, helped me start my coaching business. Mm. Um, but I just felt so ready to share what I had learned with other people and one of the most important things I thought um, I would need to do is be really vulnerable as a coach to share my failures, to share my fears, to share the fact of how anxious I would get. Because when you're an athlete, if you think you're the only one that gets nervous or you're the only one that, that gets a bit fearful before the gun goes off, like that makes you feel weak and that makes you lose your confidence. So I wanted 
every athlete I coach to understand that like, it's normal to feel anxious. It's normal to fear some fear. And these are the tools that I'm going to teach you so that you can overcome that and have it, you know, strengthen you, not weaken you. Mm. Um, so I started coaching immediately. And I think in the beginning, I was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to do what worked for me. You know, this is what Brett did with me. And for like the first couple of months, I was kind of like training like Brett. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this doesn't feel right. Like, mm. I don't want to be a coach, even though Brett is amazing. I, I love him. He's incredible. But I wanted to be myself. I wanted to be a fearlessly authentic leader. And so I had to kind of come up with my own ideas on, on how I wanted to coach, of course, using a lot of the same philosophies as Brett, like having a squad, you know, having everyone move to Boulder, Colorado to train with me in person, like that was huge. Um, but I really wanted to be very authentic about my philosophies, my principles and my approach. And, and that was the, the big step that I took. I'm sorry, I totally went off track with what your question no, was. No, 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 that's exactly what my question was. I think there's this, I think you're moving into exactly the area I want to talk about. And I think listening to you, you know, over this past hour and knowing you for the last 20 years, your natural ability to help people with mindset strategies, with mental strategies is just absolutely incredible. And the way that you articulate it and you can because you've been there and you can understand it, I think that makes you the great coach that you are. Because there's no doubt when we look at endurance sports and especially in the high performance and we're trying to optimize an individual athlete, almost the physical, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat, right? We, we could throw, okay, you got to do more aerobic work. You should break it up into these kind of intervals or you should train like Zatopek or Lydiard. And I'm mentioning all these kind of famous coaches and athletes of the past or the Brett Sutton model. The, there's a million ways physically to get the most out of somebody for an endurance sport. But that ability to day in, day out, get that little bit more from each workout and get that little bit more from each race Laura and I put it when we decided to start coaching ourselves in 04, kind of 03, 04, was we wanted to do it with intent. We believe yeah. the word intent is the difference between good and great, right? It's that being intentional about what we did. And that's what you deliver to your athletes, it seems to me. This, we Look, I could tell you to go ride 90 kilometers up around the mountains of Colorado, or I could tell you to do... 80 kilometers and do a 10 kilometer time trial in the middle of it. At the end of the day, we're talking about very, very little differences when it comes to physical. But the understanding of the mental approach of what I'm trying to get you to do out of that workout and why it's the right workout is the critical part. Would you yes. say would you say that that's what your gift has been to your athletes, almost more than just the physical program? Oh yeah. I mean, one million percent for sure. And and also that um you know, I've always been one, I choose an approach and I believe in it 1 million percent and, and I don't go back and I kind of demand that from my athletes. It's like, okay, you know, this is how we're going to do things. I need you to believe in it with all your heart. Cause if you're trying to follow three different strategies, I'm going to do this because Brett Sutton says this and Siri says this, so I'll do that. And Greg says this, so I'll do that. You're just going to get yourself up in a mess. And like, I'll never forget uh, when Rennie wanted to do Ironman. And, and the first thing I said to her is like, 
how desperately do you want to do this? And she said, really bad. And I said, okay, well, we're going to wait another year or two. Because I feel, you know, for an athlete going into an Ironman, you have to want it so bad because when the going gets tough in an Ironman, like you better want to be there. Otherwise it's going to be super easy to want to stop or give up. Mm. Um, so I wanted to build up that, that hunger for her. And when she told me she wanted to do it and that this was like her big dream, I thought, okay, well, I want to learn, you know, how to coach an Ironman athlete. I'd certainly never done an Ironman before. Mm. So I kind of went and talked to all the very best, you know, Mark Allen, Paula Newby Frazier and Karen Smyers, McKeeley Jones, everybody, and would just ask questions. And then it came down to saying, okay, do I want to coach her like all these people do? Do I want to just do what they're doing or do I want to create something? that I believe in 1 million percent. And I decided just, you know, like in the beginning, I wanted to be authentic. And I believed I had this plan. I had this idea that I really thought would work for Ironman. So I presented it to Rennie and we talked it over and we collaborated on it. And and we agreed, like, this is going to be our plan. And we went to uh, the Hawaii Ironman World Championship in 2009. And Rennie had never run a marathon in her life. So this was going to be our first marathon. And I have to admit, and maybe I made this up to motivate me, but I felt like a lot of people were kind of laughing at us, like thinking, you know, here are two girls. Rudy's never won a marathon. Siri's never gone over an Olympic distance race. Like what a joke that they're trying to take on Ironman. But we were so 1 million percent invested in our plan and committed to it and believing in it with all our hearts. And she went in and came in second and had the run course record on the marathon. And that gave us great confidence. And it's like, okay, we're on to something here like this. And, and you know the rest of the story. But I believe that if you're going to have a coach, um, choose to go all in. It's like, it's like getting married. If you're going to be married, go all in. This is like make it magical, make it amazing. Like you can't have one foot in and one foot out. Mm. Um, so that's something I kind of demand. I think it's so important because again, there are, and and I can't believe I'm using this, this statement that you said, but you know, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. I don't want to skin a cat. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? Of course, of course. We can get to your foundation <laughs> in a moment. I didn't know that, <laughs> that you've said that back to me. I feel terrible. <laughs> Because I just said it too, because it's a great, it's a great way to put it. There's a thousand ways to skin a cat, but you have to pick one of them, you know, and, and go all in on that is my belief. And obviously my philosophies and everything change every year. You know, I'm demanding that my athletes are growing and progressing and learning every single day. And I demand the same of myself. Mm. I demand that I learn and grow and become a better coach and, and get better with each and every day and work hard every single day. So things change over time, but whatever your plan is at that time, believe in it 1 million percent. I, I, I had, um, talking about growth, uh, I had, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Coach Joel Filiol and Coach oh, Dan, Dan, Dan yeah. Lorang, um, both incredible coaches and done incredible things. And, and both of them, when I asked, you know, your coaching philosophies, where did you really learn them from? Both of them kind of said, I've learned them most through the athletes I've worked with. And, and trial and error and blah, blah, blah. And I've got to this point in my life where I'm starting to, you know, I'm still growing and learning. Is that the same for you? Or, were, you know, is it a combination of everything? Absolutely. I feel like I am growing and learning every single day. And as a coach, I'm happy 
to admit also that we learn from our athletes. Mm. Like we're not just the one that's in charge telling everyone what to do. Like, like I observe each and every athlete, you know, every single day and, and their mindset, their strategies, everything they do. And I'm learning from them as well. Um, so I believe you can learn not just from people in the sport, but outside of the sport, you know, I've learned from my horse, um, how to better train my athletes. Mm. And I've learned about, you know, how we carry ourselves and, and the energy we come into things and whether that serves us or hurts us. And so you can learn all around you. Um, and I'm someone, I'm a voracious, um, I do love to read. I, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to yours because I love it, but I love to read and I love to observe. And I believe that the best coaches in the world are wanting to continually learn and grow because things change. We're evolving as a sport and we need to kind of keep up with that. Can, can I ask you a couple of kind of, with your coaching, the the kind of if i looked at a year um as your squad and i know everybody kind of does their different things accordingly but do you kind of follow a certain routine or plan throughout the year and do you work on kind of like doing vo2 work at some stage or strength work or conditioning how does it how do you plan out your year with each year athletes yeah i think it's a bit different it's not like this um using periodization. It's very individual for depending on the athletes and what their goals are. But if I could make the most sense out of it and, and put it like on a whole, um, off season is super important to me. Um, we don't just do nothing. Like basically I give my athletes two weeks off in the off season where they are not allowed to swim, bike and run. <laughs> and then another two weeks where they can do one thing a day, but no swim, bike or run. And most athletes just panic over this because they're like, Oh my God, I'm going to lose everything. But what I see as being so useful in that is that they, they get reminded of how passionate they are about the sport. They're like, Oh my God, please let me swim. Please let me bike. Please let me run. Like, they, they get this hunger. And I believe hunger is such a huge part of achieving great results in this sport. So I build up their hunger. And then when it's time to get back to work, um, you know, they're full on all in ready to go. Um, and they've done enough during that time. I'm having them do, you know, they can go and do some strength work, mostly like foundation work and mobility work and keeping their core strong. Then I usually start everyone out with a big swim block because I want my athletes to go into their, their, to start up their training again, super, super fit. And the way I see it, you know, whether you're an amazing swimmer or someone that really needs to improve their swim, doing a big swim block is going to get you super, super fit. It's also going to help your swim, which is going to help your bike, which is going to help your run. But it's an incredible way to get super fit aerobically because that aerobic fitness you get from swimming of course, translates to the bike, of course, translates to the run. Mm. Um, and then throwing in a little bit of biking and running along with that. From there, you know, it's focusing on um, an athlete's weakness and, and doing different blocks of building up their strength on the bike or working on their run technique, run form, run fitness. So that's where it becomes very individual. Mm. Um, throughout the year, mobility work and foundational strength work is super important to me. Um, I, in our training, um, and this is what I love about the IT, ITU and World Cup racing, is, you know, really preparing for 
you know, the swim start, you know, for ITU and World Cup racing, you're planning for the swim start, you're dealing with those nerves, you're working on positioning and, and your strategy and all of that. And a lot of athletes that do the other distances aren't focusing on that, but it's so incredibly important. Like it can truly change an athlete's race. If they get a, get a good swim start, they're able to, you know, tap into their full potential. So working a lot on skill-based um, mindset strategies, you know, preparing for race-like scenarios mm. um, is super important to me year round. Um, we train, um, so off-season training would be a lot more aerobic work, but I have always kept, I don't want my athletes to lose touch with their ability to withstand pain. Okay. Not in a bad way. Not like I'm torturing them, but <laughs> I believe that, you know, if you take three months off of doing anything that requires you to really push and go hard, I feel like you can lose touch with your ability to, to push to that level. And that takes a while to come back. Mm. So I will sprinkle in, in the off season, we're mostly doing, you know, strength work, you know, sports specific strength work, like a lot of hills on the bike and hills on the run and, and, you know, longer sessions, lots of strength work in the pool, but throwing, sprinkling in sessions, you know, fast speed work, um, some threshold work, not a lot, like nowhere near what we do in season, but just so they maintain contact with that discomfort and their ability to deal with it. Um, you know, it's like when, you know, people in the regular world, they have a week off work and they go out on vacation and they come back and it's really hard to get back into the rhythm of working again. Hmm. Um, I kind of relate it to that. Like when we get back to doing the hard work, I don't want to waste time reminding them of how hard they can go or how hard they can push. I want them to already have that inside of them, if that makes sense. Hmm. No, I agree with you. I mean, that was much the same as what we would always do is... Keep in touch with the VO2 work, keep in touch with the threshold work, leg speed, all of that kind of stuff, just just so it's not so crazy when you you start the season. Now, do you start the season with with preparation races or is every race a key race? How, how do you plan out a, an athlete season? And again, that's really, uh, it's an individual thing. Yeah. You know, I have some athletes that will do fewer races, but each race is an A race for them. And then I have other athletes that I really want to give them experience of racing. And so I will set up their plan being, okay, well, your first two races are, you know, the first race, I really want you to focus on, on the bike and, and being consistent and pushing as hard as you can. The second race, we're going to work on the run. And usually what happens is because the expectation isn't there that they crush it from start to finish, they end up having these great performances <laughs> because they're just focusing on one thing that they think we're after for that race. Um, but mentally, you know, like Marinda is an athlete who she will give everything she has for the world championship. And that's why so often we didn't do the 70.3 world championship as well, because I knew that she would dig, you know, as deep as she possibly can. And I didn't want her to empty her reservoir, you know, so soon before the Ironman world championship, which was obviously her priority. So for someone like her, you know, we would do fewer races, but um, every race would be pretty important. But then there, 
be, you know, Yvonne Van Vlerken, who's, I believe, one of the greatest Ironman athletes that has ever lived. You know, she used to race nearly every weekend. So we had to, you know, each race would have a purpose. And then we'd have our A races. And that worked really well for her. So it's definitely an individual thing. And that's something, you know, in the beginning, I did it one way, you know, and then I realized one way doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And there's so much I can learn from doing things differently for every athlete. Um, And that's worked really well for me, because it's it's taking each athlete into account and giving them what they need to truly, you know, become the best athlete they can be. Yeah. And you you get better at learning personalities and, and strengths of each athlete to under, identify what they need throughout their year. And I love you, you touched on Rini um, and, and Marinda Carfrey, who I mentioned in the introduction, three-time world champion, plus a bunch of silvers and bronze at world championship. Uh, one of the greatest, you know, athletes we've seen. <laughs> and yeah. what we love, and, and both Marinda Carfrey and her husband, Timothy O'Donnell, very, very good friends of, of ours as well. And we used to laugh that often throughout the year, you know, myself, Laura, and and Timothy O'Donnell would have wins. We'd get a couple of wins, whether it be 70.3, Olympic distance, whatever. We were winning. And, and we'd be like, don't worry, Rennie, you'll be okay. Don't worry, Rennie. And then boom, <laughs> she'd go win a, another world title at the end of the year. And it was like this constant, like, I know she's a racer and she didn't like not winning early in, you know, May, June, July, August. And she she did some years win those times. But quite often, I remember several times, all of us having a barbecue and a drink or whatever and going, don't worry, Rini, you know, you're tight. You're not retired yet. Don't worry. <laughs> and then oh come out, boom, another world title. I'm like, Oh God, enough feeling sorry for Rini <laughs> not winning early <laughs> in the year. So she definitely, you know, you mentioned her several times about that. She wanted to go all in for Kona. Um, and that's what she wanted. And that became very clear, you know, and she's won a lot of 70.3, a lot of other races, but it really, that that event in Kona, I think she's had, is it seven or eight podiums now um, with three wins? Uh, just un- unbelievable resume. What I also like about your coaching is one thing to point out, Rennie and Susan Williams, who we, we kind of brushed over a little bit with her bronze medal at the Olympic Games, but you then picked up Leander Cave and boom, within a year of working with it, Leander goes off to win Kona and, and a 70.3 world title in the same year. Just my point in bringing that up is it's you can't be just pointing out going well Rennie was really talented <laughs> you know you've you've gone and grabbed Leander who is an incredible athlete in her own right but there was a pretty big gap between her world titles um and then winning those world titles I think she won in 2012 um back to back so what I love about your resume as a coach is that you've been able to show that I can work with various athletes and many athletes can be on the podium and, and, and world championship wins. So just, just incredible to you. How many do you have in your squad right now? Right now I have uh, eight at this time. It was, you know, when I got sick, um, mm. I lost a couple and, you know, of course for me, I'm like, Oh, they don't believe I'm going to, I'm going to live and I'm going to show them, you know, but of course that wasn't it. They just really wanted to make sure that they had a squad to train with. And Hmm. obviously no one really has a squad right now to train with due to COVID and everything. But so I've got a small squad because I'm doing, you know, a lot of other things as well, but my coaching matters to me, you know, more than ever. Um, And it's kind of nice to have a smaller squad. I would like Greg, if I can, to just honor, 
Leanne, to cave uh, since you brought that please, up. Please, please, please do. Yes. If it's okay to share, you know, Rennie had, um, Rennie came in uh, second in 2009. In 2010, she came back and won Hawaii. And 2011, she came in second. And she was really disappointed that uh, she couldn't win it again. And she decided to change coaches. And as any coach, you know, you're hurt. You feel like, my God, they don't appreciate, you know, how far we've come together. They don't realize, you know, my part in, in her success. And that was an incredible motivator for me. And, and then Leanda Cave showed up and she said, I want to win Hawaii. And, you know, nobody believes I can. And, and I really want this more than anything in the world. And I'm like, hey, let's do this. Because for me, there was this part of me that was like, I'm going to prove that, you know, I played a big role in this because I'm going to take this athlete and we're going to win a world championship. And that's going to prove that, you know, that my part in this mattered, which we can all understand that. Let's be real. We can all understand that desire. And when Leanda came, she was such an amazing athlete. And I remember talking to, um, actually, I won't bring up that story, but a lot of people were like, oh, you know, she's, she's done her thing. Like she, she's not going to be able to win a world championship. So they were doubting her. You know, I felt like I had been doubted and we changed a lot of things for her. You know, I had, she's an incredible swimmer, but I had her change her swim stroke and develop a higher cadence. And we were doing a lot of, you know, fast, short speed work, which she'd never done before. And we kind of worked on her run form and um, just like I was talking about earlier, you know, choosing races and saying, hey, let's just use this race to, you know, work on your run. Let's go for a great 21K in this race and the rest of the race just kind of cruise. And we went to 70.3 World Championships and she won. And it was like, oh, my God, Leanna Cave just became a 70.3 World Champion. This is incredible. <laughs> and that kind of got us even more excited about Kona, which was about five weeks later. And when we were there, honest to God, you know, I'm on, on the side of the course out at like mile 13. And right when Leanda was about to get to me, Rennie had just caught her on the run. I'm like, great. I have to deal with this right now, the two of them together. And, um, it was at that point, Rennie caught her and they ended up running into the energy lab. What did you together. say? Hang on. What did you say when they both went past you? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I looked in Leanda's eyes I looked in her eyes, she looked in mine, and I said, you know what to do. And she gave me this look like, yeah, I do. And I waited, and I waited. They're in the energy lab, and I've got goosebumps everywhere, and I'm listening in my headphones to the race, and they're like, oh, there's no hope for Leanda. You know, nobody runs away from Rennie. And I'm watching, and, and there's a fog coming up from, from the energy lab, and I see this tall, lean body, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's Superbird. It's Leanda. And she had run away from Rennie, and Leanda ended up winning that race, and it was probably one of the greatest moments of my life because – you know, no one believed she could do it and she did. And now she's, you know, she won a world championship at every distance. Like that's phenomenal. Yeah, she, she's one of the most remark remarkable, almost like I, I feel at times we forgot to, we forget to mention her in one of the yeah. all time greatest five or six women of all time, because yeah. she's won at all distances, ITU world championships, ITU long course, Ironman 70.3. She's won them all. 
Unbelievable. She's incredible. And so I wanted to honor her because she is so incredible. And that was incredible. And and again, it's an example of life happening for you, not to you. Rennie left and that allowed me to take my coaching to a whole new level. She ended up coming back. We ended up winning the Ironman World Championship 2013 and 2014. And, and it was just an amazing, happy story. But sometimes like these, these things that are like these bombs that drop on you are happening to take you to a whole new level. And we need to appreciate that. I love Siri. This has just been absolutely fantastic. There's so many other things I want to chat to you about, but I recognize the time. I recognize that you know, you've got a lot on your plate and you've taken all this time out for me just to chat. And, you know, we do miss you guys not being up in Boulder at the moment, but we will get back up there hopefully soon. Um, now, is there anything else you want to talk about? I know you guys have a foundation or two foundations. You want to quickly tell us about that? Oh, I would love, thank you, Greg. Thank you for asking. My incredible wife, Rebecca Keat, and I, um, I rescued a horse a few years ago and this horse like literally changed my life. I mean, I self discovery times a million and really helped take my coaching to a whole new level as well. So I was so grateful. And one day I'm like, what, what am I saving her from? And I Googled online, you know, why am I rescuing a horse? And this video, which I can't find to this day came up and it was showing the brutal slaughter of horses. It was just awful. Like these beautiful animals being pulled up on a on a pulley and shot in the head and it takes them six minutes to die and they're being dismembered a lot awful I felt to the ground I was like crying out my wife came running up the stairs I pointed at the screen and we knew our lives were never going to be the same because these beautiful animals like they're healers they're teachers they're incredible they're they're you know they're they're just these beautiful beautiful animals and we decided that we were going to devote our lives to um, saving these horses from slaughter. And we're in the process of actually banning horse slaughter altogether. And we're coming very close, which is a miracle. Um, but our rescue is called Believe Ranch and Rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put that in the show notes for people listening. You could you uh, find it there. Yeah. Amazing. And, and we're not just saving horses. Like we save these horses and these horses end up going to equine therapy ranches where they are helping people recover from PTSD, addiction, anxiety, fear. They're, they're teaching leadership skills. So they're really, you know, saving humans as well. Mm. And um, in our hands action, actually horses in our hands is our other nonprofit. They're both nonprofits and we're going to end the the slaughter of horses, which is amazing. But if anyone out there is a horse lover or is inspiring and inspired uh, by helping humans heal from from things that hold us back in life, um, please support us. We're doing some amazing things um, here at Believe Ranch and Rescue. And Greg, I just want to honor you. You are just one of the greatest athletes the sport has ever seen, but also one of the most incredible humans. And your wife, Laura, same thing, one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen, but also one of the best human beings. And I'm so grateful to call you a friend and to be inspired by you and to have shared this time with you. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you so much. Sir. It means the world to me. And and please give big hugs to, to Bex, one of the, the greatest women I know on this planet as well. So it's yeah. just a, been absolutely fantastic. Um, now, if people want to follow you, I'll put it in the show notes, um, your journey, the squad's journey. I know you have a an amazing uh, club. Uh, I believe you guys have a club. You also have different podcasts and different shows. Tell me just a quick rundown of what those are, and I'll, I'll make sure those are in the show notes as well. 
Great. Yeah, we have Team Serious Tri Club. It's an amazing tribe of, of athletes of all different abilities. We do live chats every week and offer incredible value every week, just, you know, tips on, on training, racing, nutrition, everything. And we'd love to have you be a part of our family. So mm. you can find us on Team Serious Tri Club. Uh, com, which is our website. You can follow me, Siri Lindley, on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Um, but Team Serious Tri Club, we'd love to get you on board. Um, it's an amazing family we have. Yeah, I've heard fan- fantastic things about the club and it's really affordable. It's one of those things I heard that's like, you know, quite often you people go, oh my God, how much am I paying for out? But I think you guys have just done such a good job of this club and building up the numbers. And I think at one point you're the biggest one of the biggest clubs in the world, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know what I've, I've yeah, no, yeah. So we're yeah. very proud. We've got an amazing club. It's like $37 a month. Um, we're offering a free month right now. So a perfect time to check it out and see perfect. what we're all about. Perfect. Well, Siri, this has absolutely been fantastic. Thank you everybody for listening. If you're not inspired and feeling empowered after this conversation, I don't know what, I don't know what I can do to help you because that was, <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic series so please stay on the line and uh, just absolutely wonderful thanks thank you so much greg you're amazing thanks a lot for listening to be with champions if you enjoyed the show your support would truly be appreciated you can visit the be with champions patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice don't miss the next episode so subscribe and be notified For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.